1 Timothy chapter 1, we'll be looking at the first five verses as we begin our study proper of this first letter of Paul. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on in Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love, from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Let us pray. Our Father, we do ask that you would guide us by your Spirit as we again come before you in your Word. You would give us grace and mercy and peace as Paul here prays for his child in the faith, Timothy. And we ask that we might gain an understanding of the purpose of your administration, your economy, as Paul refers to it here, that we might live within it and give you honor and glory through our lives, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. First and Second Timothy are the most intimate of Paul's letters. Uh, the relationship between Paul and Timothy is unique within what we read in Scripture. We, we hear him calling Timothy here in verse 2, my true child in the faith, something else that, or something that he doesn't refer to in anyone else. We don't know anything really of Paul's direct family. Uh, we don't know if he was married. We know that he did not travel about with a wife, as he mentions the other disciples and the Lord's brother and Cephas did have believing wives. He mentions that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We don't know that he had any children. The closest relative that we hear of is a sister who had a son who warned the, um, uh, the Roman centurion of the plot to kill Paul when he was in prison in Jerusalem. We read of that in Acts chapter 23. So we don't know much about Paul's family except that it would have been unusual for him to have risen as high as he did within the Jewish religion and not been married because the teachings of the scriptures and the traditions of the Jewish priesthood and the rabbinic groups is the exact opposite of Roman Catholicism. The priesthood of Judaism was, was never to be celibate. In fact, they were really not supposed to begin their duties as Levites, as priests, until they had attained the age of 30, by which time it was expected that they would have married and have gone far in raising their children. And I think that is the context behind what we're going to read later in 1 Timothy with regard to what are known as the qualifications for elders and for deacons within the church. Now this is not, of course, to rule out the possibility that Paul was single. 
and that he had devoted his life to the study of the Torah and to the, the Pharisaic observation of Judaism. It's just to say that that would have been an anomaly. And so we don't know much about Paul's life except that we read that he encounters Timothy during his missionary journeys, and obviously Timothy is, is quite young at the time, perhaps only a teenager. When Timothy comes to faith in Jesus Christ, and from that place becomes a near constant companion of the Apostle Paul. So Timothy was as close to Paul as a son to a father. And it seems as we read through these letters of Paul to Timothy, and undoubtedly there must have been others, that it was a matter of um, sorrow, and, and may we even say anxiety, to be parted, Paul, from Timothy. Timothy was apparently somewhat timid in personality. His youth was something that Paul realized others would look down upon and would not heed his apostolic legate because of how young uh, Timothy was. And so therein perhaps lay the anxiety that Paul would have, the concern. I won't say anxiety in a, in a sinful way, but a, but a concern that his son in the faith, his true child in the faith, would remain faithful, would remain strong, even though Paul himself was not with him. And also we can trust, I think, therefore, that there must have been a very strong and compelling reason for Paul to choose to leave Timothy in Ephesus, leave a young man uh, whom he had grown accustomed to having with him, uh, to, to put himself through the sorrow and the anxiety um, of, of parting with someone that he had been with and, and um, whose tutelage he had taken command of and, and the love that Paul developed toward Timothy, there must have been a compelling reason. And I think as we read the, the, the two epistles, or primarily 1 Timothy, with uh, looking at 2 Timothy in, in the same connection, I think we're going to see that the concern that Paul has is not just limited to Ephesus, but rather to all of the churches of Jesus Christ. And that his concern had reference to what the prophets would bring before the people of Israel with regard to their shepherds in the times of apostasy before the Babylonian exile and before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The prophets tell us that the shepherds merely fleeced the flock. They merely got fat on the flock rather than nurturing the flock and truly shepherding it. And I think that's why Paul left Timothy there were dangers in Ephesus, as there were in Corinth, as there were on Crete, as there were in Colossae, as there were in Philippi, as there are here in Greenville, here in Fellowship Bible Church. There were dangers, dangers of a pastoral nature, dangers of the flock of Jesus Christ being misled and eventually devoured by lies. And so we begin this, this letter of Paul to Timothy with a unique greeting in verse 2. 
He says to Timothy, my true child in the faith, and we've already seen how unique that relationship was. He says, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I imagine that you've read through the epistles enough that you know that they each begin with such a salutation and probably you've read through them so much that you don't pay much attention to them. In fact, Paul's greetings throughout his epistles are quite uniform, where he says to those to whom he is writing, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This exact phrase, or a very close variant of it, is found in Romans 1 verse 7, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 3, Galatians 1 verse 3, Ephesians 1 verse 2, Philippians 1 verse 2, Colossians 1 verse 2, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1, you get the idea. His greetings were quite, really, invariable. Except to Timothy, he adds mercy. He says to Timothy, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. He adds mercy. Now, we're told by the author of Hebrews that we have boldness to approach the throne of God's grace, to seek mercy and grace in our time of need. But Paul doesn't beseech mercy or invoke mercy on behalf of the congregations of Rome and Ephesus and Corinth, and Lord knows Corinth needed mercy. Galatia, whose, whose faith Paul was wondering the validity, and yet he doesn't he doesn't speak of mercy. And I, I don't think that we should make too much of it, except for the fact that this is Paul's truly intimate pastoral letter to his child in the faith, Timothy, with regard to the pastoral ministry of the churches of Jesus Christ. The church at Ephesus in particular, but because of the preservation of this letter for posterity by the Holy Spirit, all churches find themselves in the situation of Ephesus, and I would submit to you that all pastors find themselves as recipient of Paul's greeting, his unique greeting to Timothy. We read that not many within the church should strive to become teachers, because as such they will incur a stricter judgment. We read that those who are elders in the church of God must give an account for the souls that have been entrusted to them. In other words, we read in numerous places, as we will in 1 Timothy and in Titus, that the men who God raises up to shepherd His church will have a double judgment. They will, with all believers, stand before the throne of judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account, as Paul says in Corinthians, for the deeds done in the flesh. In other words, elders are no different. We looked last week at the fact that they have been chosen by the Holy Spirit from among the flock to oversee the flock. They're not elevated as clergy. They're not made more holy by that ordination. They will, as believers, give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ for the deeds that they have done in their flesh, in their life. But they will also give an account for the shepherding of the souls whom God has placed under their care.
Patrick Fairbairn writes in, in this respect, in this passage, he says, if they know aright what they are and what they should be, they will be ever throwing themselves on God's mercy. I don't think it is a mistake. I don't think it was an oversight in Paul's mind in writing the word mercy in his greeting to Timothy. I think it was foremost in his mind that while all men need mercy and all believers continually need mercy, none need mercy more than those who take up God's word to teach God's people God's ways. And that's really the, the thrust of the pastoral epistles, is the life of the churches of Jesus Christ from the standpoint of the pastoral ministry. I mentioned last week that one of my goals and focuses of this particular teaching series is 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, where Paul exhorts Timothy to take the things that Paul had instructed to Timothy and to entrust them to faithful men who would then teach others after them. Apostolic succession of apostolic doctrine. And I maintain that, that uh, the things that we call Bible colleges and seminaries have become a necessary evil within Western evangelicalism because the church is no longer doing that transmission of the faith once handed down to the saints. But rather entrusting that to these institutions and that now the training is done in a somewhat hermetically sealed environment separated in large measure from the life of the church. Producing men with degrees who then come back to the church as shepherds rather than from within. Because what was going on within, the dynamic of the local church, is something that the pastors, according to what Paul is teaching here, need to be engaged with. He says, I charged you upon my departure to remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. It's not a matter of a man learning a particular system of doctrine and then coming to the church and imposing or maintaining that doctrine within that church. I don't believe that was the dynamic that God intended for the churches of Jesus Christ. But rather that the pastors of the church from within the church would maintain sound biblical apostolic doctrine and that the pastors of the church would charge those within the church that they not teach strange doctrines. I believe this is the primary duty of the pastoral ministry, to faithfully teach the Word of God to God's people and to make sure through the Episcopal ministry, the oversight, that the teaching of God's Word remain faithful. I don't believe that it was intended, as we continue through this epistle and we read about the functions of elders, I don't believe it was ever the intention of God or the Holy Spirit 
that all of the teaching within the congregation be done by one man. I'm not even convinced that all of the teaching in all of its forms be done by the elders. Hence, we have a Sunday school class in which other men teach. But they teach under the guidance of the elders who are here charged, I believe, by God through Paul to make sure that the teaching that is given to the congregation is not strange doctrine. Now, throughout its life, the church has adopted different priorities. At times it has been social activism, the battle against uh, alcoholism or slavery, the battle against child labor. At other times it has been evangelism and missions. And there are still churches that have that particular emphasis in their ministry. And, and I don't mean to say that these other aspects of ministry are unimportant or unbiblical, only to say that they are secondary to the ministry of the teaching of the Word of God to God's people. I remember years ago somebody asking, uh, because we had, we had only one time on our sign out front, and it was the time that we met for Sunday school, and I was challenged by somebody at that time by saying, you know, uh, what if people only want to come to the, the, the sermon? Shouldn't you have both times on there? And I said, well, we kind of consider that gathering around God's Word is, is the act of worship on the Lord's Day. And her response was, oh, so you're a teaching church then. As, as if there is another kind. But there are many kinds, aren't there? There are program churches, there are missions and evangelistic churches, there, there are many kinds of churches, but that doesn't mean that each kind is, is right. And it is, I believe, the correct view of God's Word, that the function of the Levite and the function of the scribe and the function of the elder is to bring to God's people God's Word faithfully on a regular basis. Raising up those who will do the same after them. And so Paul says to Timothy, I, I charge you or I urge you to charge certain men. And that, that word that the New American Standard translates as, as instruct is actually stronger than that. It's, it's I charge. I want you to charge them not to teach Strange doctrines, well, the word is, is, is actually something that we're familiar with, the, the, the prefect hetero, which means different, not the same, which is homo. And so he says, I, I charge you to instruct certain men, and apparently Paul knew who those men were, he just very diplomatically doesn't mention them, which is important. Because there are other times when Paul does name names. He doesn't do that here. He says, I want you to charge certain men not to teach differently. I don't want you to teach differently. Now this is the, the opposite of orthodoxy. It's called heterodoxy. Orthodoxy has to do with, for example, orthodontics. The fellow you go to see to make your teeth straight. And orthodoxy is straight teaching. Teaching that is in line with the apostolic teaching. Heterodoxy is that which is different. 
And so the New American Standard calls it strange, but, but I, I don't think that's a very good word. Because strange indicates something that's odd and perhaps easily recognized, whereas different may not be odd. In fact, it might be quite stimulating. It might be very interesting. It might be very captivating. And it might be presented in a way that is not obvious. And so it calls for greater care. But what then? Should we pass an act of uniformity like the English church did in the times of of the Reformation in England, an act of uniformity that stipulates that every single church will preach the exact same homily, read the same passage, recite the same liturgy from the Book of Common Prayer, every church in every village on each Lord's Day? Is that the answer? That the powers that be would get together and determine the limits of variation that are granted to the local churches, and usually what happens is that no limits are granted, and you end up with uniformity, and a deadly uniformity. It was an act of uniformity that sent John Bunyan to prison so many times because he just simply wouldn't comply. He would go to his church, and he would preach what the Lord laid upon his heart, rather than reading the liturgy that had been passed by Parliament and enforced upon the Church of England. Well, we're not going to go to a church of uniformity. I mean, my word, we're Americans. We're not going to submit to that kind of uniformity. But maybe we can achieve what Paul is talking about here and the, and the safety of orthodoxy through confessionalism. Maybe if we make at least a certain group of churches accept as their pattern of teaching. Now, hear me carefully. Because as we've taught before, I, I am not denigrating the value of confessions. But rather the process whereby individual churches within a group, within a denomination, adopt a confession as the fairly rigid framework within which they maintain their orthodoxy. Now, this is not quite as bad as an act of uniformity, but I don't think that this is what Paul is talking about. I don't think he is telling Timothy to charge certain men to say the same things, to speak with one voice, to reference the same creed or confession, to teach the same teachings that other men have taught before them. I think that would put a straitjacket on the Holy Spirit and on the pastoral ministry itself. Because every pastor is unique, is different. He's different in his perspective and his approach. And every congregation and every culture in which that congregation resides is different. And so while we have to adjust, and as even Paul says, in a sense, to become all things to all men, that by any means he might win some. We have to see how we can maintain orthodoxy without succumbing to uniformity. And I think Paul gives us guidance in his letters. For example, in Galatians, that very difficult book where Paul is, is struggling again as if in the pains of labor 
that Christ would be formed in them again. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, he uses this same word, heteron, but he talks about a different gospel. A gospel that is no gospel at all. A gospel that he is, he is amazed that the Galatians are fa- falling so easily for. And Paul says there that even if a, a, an angel were to bring a different gospel, let him be accursed. So Galatians sets, sets a, a one very, very vivid boundary with regard to the teaching in any church, and that is if it is a different gospel than the gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation, as we read in, in Ephesians, by grace through faith alone. But what Paul has to say regarding that kind of heterodoxy is much harsher than what he says here. There, he says, let them be anathema. Let them be accursed. Here, he says, I charge you to instruct them not to teach strange doctrines. So I think we can establish from the reference in Galatians that there is a a threshold beyond which we are now into heresy, not just heterodoxy. And there is a difference. Within the faith, the biblical faith, there are a multitude of teachings, many of which line up with the apostolic teaching, some of which deviate. And I think that this is where it becomes so complex and subtle. For example, if if someone comes into our church and begins to say that, you know, um, you really need to add to your gospel praying to Mary, the Redemptrix and the Queen of Heaven. Well, that's obvious. That's one that, that the elders and the congregation can stand united and say, no, that is false. That is a false gospel. But that's not... That's not the usual pattern of the one who is the most subtle of all God's creatures, who masquerades as an angel of light. That's actually the state of a church as a result of heterodoxy. It's really the end of the journey that began many years and maybe even generations earlier with a slight deviation from the straight teaching. Can we recognize those deviations as being something more sinister than just one man's perspective versus another? Do you see the danger and the difficulty there? I mean, safety would be no deviation. This is how you say it. These are the words you use. And that way, the church is safe, isn't it? But also, there is no true ministry in the body. There's no exercise of the giftedness and the perspective and the wisdom that the Holy Spirit gives to each of us as individuals. There's no iron sharpening iron. There's just rigid uniformity. And I don't believe that has ever protected the church. Because with that kind of rigid uniformity, there is also no longer any searching the scriptures. 
There's no longer any charge upon young men to become skilled craftsmen able to handle the Word of God in truth, able to rightly divide. There's just a slavish adherence to a creed, to a confession, or to a liturgy. That's not the answer. I think it takes the wisdom that God gives, and that's why I think Paul adds mercy to his greeting to Timothy. And I think he would add mercy to his greeting to each and every pastor of a congregation of the Church of Jesus Christ. Paul gives us more guidance closer to home in this very chapter, verses 6 and 7. He says, For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. So the law was a problem then, and that that stands to reason during this time when Christianity was, was being birthed and growing out of Judaism. Paul has to deal in many cases, Galatians, Corinthians, Romans, with the role of the law in the life of the church. And there were those who were apparently very um, self-confident that they knew the teaching of the law. Now I think Paul's going to address part of the problem a little bit later when he says that an elder in God's church should not be a novice. Should not be a young man in the faith. Should not be one who has confidence that is unwarranted, which is really kind of a characteristic of youth, a confidence that is unwarranted. He says a little bit earlier, getting even closer to the passage that we're dealing with in verse 4, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. Controversies. Myths, wild stories. I think, I, I, I don't know that anybody knows exactly the context that Timothy was dealing with, but we do know that in the latter first temple period, the time when Jesus came and, and then the time of the apostles, the rabbinic teachings had developed a, a very intricate formulation of genealogies. Because the Bible, the Old Testament, is full of genealogies, is it not? Beginning with with Seth, the son of Adam, and then the, the descendants of Noah, and those of Abraham, and then all of the different tribes. That you can, you can see how people who did nothing more than, than study those things, if they were not kept sound in their teaching and in their faith, would develop a salvation that comes through genealogy. Now, we have such a thing in our world today. It's the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And genealogies are very important to that sect. So it it, it seems like it's something that's that's always been around. And we know that, that Satan is not all that novel. He simply puts a different spin on the same deception. So we have the the good of the law, Paul says in verse 8. We know that the law is good, but it was being mistaught by men who didn't know of which of the things which they 
taught. Characteristics then of a heterodox teacher, of one who is straying from the straight way, well, there'll be an affection for novelty and conjecture. In other words, you'll find in their teaching almost every time you hear it, if not every time, something new, something a little different, something, um, something that is purely subjective conjecture. In other words, something that is not grounded in biblical teaching, but rather kind of derives in a secondary and indirect way from something that's in the Bible. Now, I think we all do a little bit of conjecture now and then. It's part of our nature, our, our intellect, our rationality for us to, to think outside the box and to ask questions of our understanding of a passage that may not be fully answered by the Scripture. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that being a characteristic, an affection for novelty and for conjecture. Also, a characteristic of a heterodox teacher is that he will be essentially alone. In other words, if he were to write a book and he would use footnotes, all of the citations would refer to himself and other teachings and books that he has written. He knows no colleagues. There are no other people teaching what he's teaching because he's all alone. I think that's a very dangerous position for any man to be in. I think that God has not waited to reveal his deep things to one of us in the 21st century, but rather the, the apostolic succession of biblical teaching has been maintained by God's grace within the church. From the apostles to the apostolic legates, Timothy, Silas, Luke, and others. From them to the elders of the congregation of the churches. From those elders to their successors and on down to our own day. Many of these men have written their views and their teachings and we have access to them in a, in a, in a marvelous providence but also a, a dangerous one. We have books without number. But it seems to me that any teaching that you hear today should have been heard in a very similar way by your grandparents and great-grandparents and on down, back the line. Novelty, conjecture, and a lone ranger are characteristics of a heterodox teacher. Oftentimes, this teaching will be very interesting. It'll be very challenging and stimulating, but it will almost always be peripheral. In other words, it, it, will, it will not be effective in the building up of the faith of the body in the Lord Jesus Christ, but rather it will, it will give all of its emphasis to something that's on the periphery of the faith or the periphery of practice, something on the outer edges because it's not grounded in the glory of Jesus Christ and his gospel. Now that doesn't mean, as I said earlier, that doesn't mean that the peripheral issues are unimportant. How we live out our life, how we conduct our business, how we conduct our, our homes. We might say these are peripheral to the gospel, but they are not. They're part of the kingdom. 
as it dwells within us by the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ. But again, the characteristic of heterodox teaching is that it emphasizes the peripheral. In fact, the people who follow this type of teaching will spend so much time on the periphery that they will lose contact with the center. And historically, they will end up becoming sects, and often cults, that spin off from the Church of Jesus Christ. But is this heresy? I think based on Paul's response, especially comparing it to what he says in Galatia, Galatians regarding those who teach a different gospel, I think the answer here in 1 Timothy is no. This is not heresy, or at least we could say this is not yet heresy. It's not a witch hunt for any and every deviation of phrase or emphasis within the plurality of teaching in a congregation. It's so easy for the leadership of the church to become essentially witch hunters, to become those who any deviation is considered a deviation from orthodoxy and is typically squashed. It's a crucial aspect, however, of biblical pastoral ministry. Do we want to wait until a teaching becomes heretical before we deal with it? Because at that point it's too late. Or should we rather concern ourselves, not, as Paul is saying, he's, he's not advocating punishment of these certain men, but rather further exhortation and instruction. Because it is his desire, not that they be shut up in completely, not that they be excommunicated, not that they be handed over for, to Satan, but rather that they be instructed in the right way. We see an example of this in Apollos, who was a man gifted in the scriptures and also apparently incredibly eloquent. And we see that, that he came to the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ and then began preaching in the church. And I think it's very interesting that it was not, as far as we know, an apostle or an elder that took him aside, but rather Priscilla and Aquila, Paul's associates, who took Apollos aside and instructed him in the right way. In other words, the goal of the pastoral ministry is not one of punitive discipline, but rather in positive instruction. Because these certain men, and perhaps this is why Paul does not name them, because he does not want to prejudice the congregation against them. Maybe they are deviating from the straight path. Maybe they are focusing on novelty and genealogies and myths. Or maybe they're saying things about the law about which they do not understand. But Paul sees in them the potential to be faithful men, to whom could be entrusted the teachings of the apostles who would then teach others after them. And so it is, I think, the lion's share of the pastor's responsibility not, not to stand like the shepherd on a high place looking for the wolf or the bear or the lion, but rather to be amongst the sheep looking for the next shepherd. Preventative maintenance rather than closing the barn door after the horse has gotten away.
We don't want it to get that far. We don't want it to get down the road to heresy. We don't want to see a large segment of the congregation broken off and misled by a teaching that started with nothing more than a deviation that could have been corrected. And I think that's why, personally, I think that's why that seminary instruction can be so dangerous to the church. Because once the man arrives at the congregation, too often he and his congregation consider that his education has ended. That he has no more to learn. He's got his seminary degree. Now he can administer the church. He can preach the sermons. He can grow the church programs. And all will be happy and all will be well. But that kind of complacency is deathly dangerous to every congregation. There is, there is never an ending to the education of the elder. Because if there is, there is an opening to the deception of the devil through heterodoxy that will go unseen, that will go uncorrected, and will result in heresy. Paul gives us, uh, this is a verse that I, years ago, highlighted in my Bible, verse 5, because I think, again, it's one of those verses that says, okay, here's, here's the kernel, here's the center of the nut, the meat. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul speaks of the end, which is the word goal, in the, Hebrew, in the Greek, the end toward which our ministry is directed, and that is love. He speaks in verse 4, an interesting phrase, he speaks of the economy of God. He speaks of a realm in which true biblical pastoral ministry will live and thrive. Again, this is a very positive message, not a witch hunt. Not a, a strict uniformity of doctrine and speech, but rather a concern of developing teachers who will rightly divide the word of truth. He says this is the administration or the economy of God, which is by faith. This is where we live safely in the grace and the mercy and the peace of God. And this is where pastoral teaching is orthodox and not heterodox, much less heretical. He focuses here on love. That's the word agape, the one that you're very familiar with, sometimes over-defined, but here he defines it. He says, it is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a faith, literally, that is not hypocritical. This is simply to say that the man qualified to preach and teach the gospel is the same man whose joy and hope and peace rest wholly in the gospel. Now, that may seem obvious, that a man who takes up the word of God to preach the gospel should himself be saved. He should himself be a beneficiary of the gospel. But sadly, I think, I think there's more to it than that. And I think we all know that we, we all are saved by the same grace through the same faith in Jesus Christ. 
But we also know and recognize that the, the burden of the gospel, the joy of the gospel, the peace of the gospel, the singularity of the gospel is something that God has not evenly impressed upon all believers. And those upon whom he has impressed it most powerfully are the ones on whom he has put the burden of pastoral leadership. So we looked at some of the characteristics of heterodoxy. Now I want to close by looking at the characteristic of biblical pastoral ministry. And the center point will always be the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. Again, it will avoid the periphery, at least spending much time there. The goal of biblical pastoral ministry is love to God and love to men. Love to men within the congregation, love to men outside the faith. The source of that love is Jesus Christ. We read that we love because He first loved us. And therefore the content of biblical pastoral ministry will be Jesus Christ. In all its various versions and teachings and extended sessions of, of doctrine, in all of its practice, its theology, all of its ethics, biblical pastoral ministry will always resolve to one person. Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we read a passage like this and we see how deficient each one of us is. And we thank you that by the Holy Spirit, Paul was inspired to add the word mercy to his greeting. For as we read the requirements that you place upon the pastor and the need of the congregation we realize how much mercy we do indeed daily need. So, Father, we too invoke the salutation of Paul and ask for grace, mercy, and peace, that you would grant this congregation and all the congregations that lift up the Lord Jesus Christ and honor him and his word, that you would grant them continual grace, mercy, and peace. And Father, that you would cause us to be ever vigilant, not as a witch hunt, but rather to, to raise up those who will be faithful to teach your word in the next generation. We ask that you would do this for your glory and for the building up of the church. We ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand for the brief benediction of Paul in his letter to Philemon. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen.